0: Hello, and welcome to Lawyerish, a podcast for the people. Lawyerish is a safe space to learn, grow, inspire, and be inspired. So come along and ride on this fantastic voyage. Let us go be great together. I'm Brandon J. Wallace, Esquire, and I'll be your captain. It's a whole vibe, and I sure am glad you're here. Lawyerish is brought to you by Apex, where aptitude meets excellence. And our Voyage Vibe today is Saturday Love. It's by Sherelle featuring Alexander O'Neill. And it's off Sherelle's 1985 album, High Priority. And it is still the jam today. We've got a great show ahead today, folks. Uh, We've got a couple of great guests. My friend Stephen McClendon is going to come and talk to us about uh, his job. Uh, at the appellate level of Veterans Affairs, really, really inter- interesting discussion about that. And we also have my good friend Miss Crystal Knight. She is doing some really great work. She's a political commentator. You can see her, catch her on Fox. She's even got a new podcast that she's going to tell us about. But first, we're going to get into a really good, duly noted with my friend Jen Alaskan. It's a special one today. We're going to talk about the loan forgiveness ish that's happening right now. <laughs> Well, we got an exciting show ahead, friends. Let's get right into Duly Noted. All right, friends. We are back, and we've got a very special Duly Noted today with my friend, Jim Laskin. Jim, welcome back to the show. You guys know her well. Thank you. Um, listen, we could talk about a lot of things. There's this big election that just happened. Uh, we're recording today, and just last night, we found out that uh, the Democrats will hold on to the Senate. We could talk about that. President Biden's is overseas, uh, dealing with climate stuff. So there's just so much to unpack. But I really want to talk today about this loan forgiveness. One of the big drivers of this election, I think, was uh, President Bobby, Biden promising to uh, clear out student loan debt. He came out with this plan uh, to forgive, what, $10,000, up to $20,000 if you're on Pell Grants. And uh, there were lots of people who applied and... Uh, we were looking like we were going to get it and now it looks like it's not going to happen. So I I just, I said, let me call Jen. Let's, let's get some clarity on it. So Jen, I've teed it up for you. Tell us what's going on. What is this ish going on, the student loan forgiveness?
1: The issue going on is that 26 million people applied for forgiveness, which for me is a a, a testament to public opinion. Um, Six GOP state uh, governor led States, filed a lawsuit to stop the loan forgiveness program with the grounds that there was not any public comment session offered for this program. And uh, it was dropped in a few states due to lack of standing. And last week, Mark Pittman, a uh, federal judge, Mark Pittman, who they say is a Trump appointee, but the Democrats voted for him too, so he's there. And Mar- uh, Judge Pittman ruled that um, the, the the program uh, could not remain, that the program needed to be canceled, that the applications had to stop. And he didn't look at the standing grounds, he didn't look at whether or not the plaintiff borrowers in the respective states brought on behalf of governors had standing. So the, uh, the loan forgiveness feature of the student loan reform that Biden pushed forward is, is for now, state. It's not happening. And the government, studentaid.org, is no longer accepting any more applications. You can register for updates through studentaid.org and they'll give you updates on the program. I don't know if it's going any higher in the courts. Uh, What I'd like to see happen in the interim is for Biden to reinstate the payment pause, which is set to expire at the end of this year, December 31st. All of our payments go back into repayment um, in January. So I'm pushing for that. There's been a little bit of noise out of the white house that that was not off the table, and what I had heard, and you know, they they float talking points to see how people react. The idea I had heard floated was that they would extend the payment plus through the election. I hope that happens because that ten thousand to twenty thousand forgiveness it didn't do a lot for many of us. It didn't fix the fundamental uh, structural issues in student loans, which is interest and um, interest rates, private loans. There's so much. Um, so yeah, that- I know you
0: were under the impression that, that that the White House could have done a lot more uh, with that. And I, I'm, I'm in the same camp, uh, especially if you've gone to grad school or got got any sort of a you know, you know doctorate level degree, uh, right? A degree. Absolutely. Uh, it's You're expensive yeah. It's
1: nothing.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to go back just a little bit and unpack this right, just for the people who, who don't know. We were talking about sort of standing, um, and, and maybe I think people should just kind of understand that a little bit. I, we won't have to go too, too in depth uh, to it, but anyway, to bring a lawsuit, right. You have to have w- uh, what, what, uh, the court calls standing, right. You have to be able to, I think you have to set, prove that you're, uh, the plaintiff is being injured somehow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, th- that was, uh, that was sort of a piece of it. Um, but. We're saying that this judge in, and I think this judge is in Texas, uh, Judge Pitts, if I'm not mistaken, he's a federal judge in Texas, and he didn't, oh, you said Pittman, okay, sorry about that, thank you, um, it, but he did not address uh, standing in any way, is that, that's right, is that what you said?
1: He did not. He said he was ruling this on the facts and the merits of the case, and he skipped right over standing, and in this case, I believe the two cases that were dropped due to lack of standing were dropped because the the borrowers, uh, I guess, didn't deserve to have their case in court. They weren't injured enough, and the borrowers who were the plaintiffs in this were people who had paid off their loans or had didn't qualify for this program. And so, because you don't qualify for this program, you're saying I'm going to be injured by this lawsuit. So cancel it. The courts didn't even believe that that was enough for them to. Bring the the case. You're not kind of close enough to the issue, or maybe they weren't going to be injured enough. Dropped it, but then it went through in other circuits and made it to uh, Mark Pittman, and he yeah, I think
0: it. I think one
1: of the the standing argument. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like I couldn't sue somebody um for uh discrimination for racial discrimination of being black. Like I don't have standing. In any case like that, because I don't have that claim to make. I'm, You know, I'm not a black mm-hmm. person. So that is just a very, very basic kind of simple example for people out there of like what standing is. And yeah, no, I think that's said, important. Oh, this judge said this is a worthy case. It affects everybody. Uh, you know, 26 million people applied, though, for forgiveness. I think that's so many people.
0: Yeah, that I think that's public comment enough, and I, I think I wanted to just kind of talk about the co- the public comment part. So usually, uh, these federal agencies, before they uh, you know implement big policy change or something like that, there is an opportunity uh, for the public to submit comments, papers, uh, research, yeah. you know, sort of testimony, if you will, written testimony. And I think what it, it just kind of sort of unpacking that, I think what this judge in Texas has said is that. Uh, Department of Education did not do that. And so therefore, we're going to pause it. Is that, do I have that right? Is that the right? You do do have that right. And the
1: public comment piece when federal agencies do these kinds of um, things is uh, democracy. They do it because democracy, because the people need to be heard and the government works for us. And our beloved, um, you know, mentor Edgar Kahn was very much about this. This is how he got so much change done in juvenile justice. He was always about calling a public meeting to let the community know what was going on and then you push policy from there. Continue. It's not the be all end all, but it's the beginning to show people this is an issue. And yeah. um, it's ironic that Judge Pittman, uh, you know, I guess for all intents of purposes, a Trump appointee, is saying this is this is thwarting democracy if we don't have public comment. I mean, there's irony there.
0: Yeah. Quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm out of time, Jen. Thanks so much for enlightening us. I really appreciate you. Anything else you want to share before we close out on this topic today?
1: No, this was great. I do uh, want to give a shout out to student loan planner. Um, he's on Instagram, probably TikTok too. Student loan planner is doing very good, a very good job at timely updates. I'm Jenny justice on TikTok, Jenny justice five five. I'm doing less timely, but very good. Uh, solid and informative updates so just keep keep track of people and this stuff's out there. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jen. Friends, we'll be right back. All right, friends, we are back and it's now time for Lawyerish. I am super excited to have my good friend, Mr. Stephen McClendon, join us today. He is a licensed attorney in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the state of Maryland, and the District of Columbia. He earned his B.A. in sociology and crime, law, and justice from the Pennsylvania State University and his Juris Doctorate from Widener University School of Law. He's been a member of the Navy Reserve since 2009. Thank you for your service, sir. Uh, He began his career as a prosecutor in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, before prosecuting in Prince George's County, Maryland. He then transitioned to the Department of Veterans Affairs, drafting appellate decisions for cases, involving veterans benefits before the board of veterans appeals currently he works at va's at the va's office of general counsel litigating veterans claims for benefits before the court of appeals for veterans claims Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show welcome to lawyerish
2: well thank you for having me i'm glad to be here
0: all right very good let's jump right into it my friend Tell us how did you uh, how did you start your law journey? Why did you go into law? How did you get to to being the dynamic lawyer that you are?
2: Okay, well, simple story. I mean, as a kid, there were two career options that I knew of. One was to be a doctor, one was to be the lawyer. And I didn't like the blood, so the doctor wasn't gonna work out for me. So they, uh, being a lawyer was the next best thing for me. <laughs> so uh, growing up, I hadn't had any real experiences with lawyers, so it was, there was a little mystery there. So I was always intrigued with it. But I used to watch TV shows like or movies, with Soul Food, with Terry, Terry Josephs. Um, so I used to watch her, love her and enjoy her. And because of that, um, I wanted to be an attorney. But it didn't really happen for me until (laughs) she was i'm telling you and she handled her own um (laughs) because of that that's why i wanted to be an attorney um so actually going through undergrad with a sociology degree and the um, crime law and justice being a lawyer actually taking the lsat was the next step for me to do so that's what it was now
0: did you plan when you picked your undergrad majors did you would you did you know you were going to law school you know when you picked sociology
2: and crime law and justice it sounds uh, very not at all my original (laughs) my original major was math because I love numbers Mm -hmm. um (laughs) however however I shifted a little bit after my first two years um to sociology because I could use a bunch of those to statistics courses to go to the sociology and then I added the crime law and mm-hmm. justice so the original goal was always to go to law school but math was my passion then so that's what I originally wanted to do or take out of undergrad but you know tell God your plans and you know how that goes
0: <laughs> yes I do know how it goes I've done that many times and been <laughs> been laughed at I think okay so you went to law school obviously you did fairly well how did you end up as a prosecutor, and what was that experience like? That's got to be that's something I you, that's what you actually really see on TV uh, quite quite often is, is lawyers in 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 criminal court, and and you not only had a sort of front row seat to some of the TV stuff, but you were you were a big time prosecutor. You had the power. You were in court to tell us about that and how you how you arrived to, to what is it Dauphin? Is
2: that Dolphin? That right. Yes. Is so, that
0: right? Dolphin, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dolphin County, yes. Dolphin County, Pennsylvania, and that's and specifically in Harrisburg, if you don't know. But okay. I got there because I had a very close friend through our law school, and she started working there as soon as we graduated. I used to talk to her about her job all the time and um, what her interests were, why she was doing it, and stuff like that. So she was the main reason why I actually applied. Um, It was my understanding that at the time there were about 30 attorneys there and there were no black attorneys prosecuting. Um, And I thought that was interesting. So that kind of gave way to my reasoning for actually wanting to do it or giving it a try and seeing what it was about. Because I was living in Harrisburg and in the inner city of Harrisburg, it's mostly African-American individuals. However, the idea that Only white Americans were prosecuting them. I thought that was crazy. So I I decided to apply there, give it a try. Um, and I started working there worked there for about two years and I really loved it. I felt like I, um, just my presence alone made the County a little bit better while I was there or something. Um, I definitely would have to go to jail for certain hearings or, um, um, Different court appearances, and I would actually have to walk through the jail and see different individuals that were incarcerated. And I think my presence uh, was more positive than negative for for those individuals as well. So that was a passion for me originally. Once I started working there in Dolphin County,
0: you think the people you were prosecuting uh, would would agree with you that your overall presence was a was
2: a positive? Um, only, well, I do first, but to the extent that when we actually had court appearances, we would have a huge docket with a, a bunch of different cases with defendants coming in from off the street or defendants coming in from the jail. Um, But you'd have plenty of opportunity to, to speak to individuals, especially those that were incarcerated mm-hmm. because they would have to, the way that they brought them in and out of the courtroom, you'd have to sit there with them. So, you know, some of them... You, we're we're a little, we're down to earth and we just talk to you about certain things. Oh, what's going on with this? Or what's going on with that? And, oh, I can't wait to get out of here so I can change my life around and just those kind of positive moments. So I think that was good. Also, I had a different perspective being a prosecutor. I I had been charged with a crime myself. So I, I think it's different. Um, When you're prosecuting someone and you have some kind of background or some kind of tie to what you're prosecuting versus um, just being thrown into a jurisdiction that you literally have no idea about the person, couldn't relate or couldn't put, you know, your yourselves in their shoes. So I thought that was different. Don't know the culture
0: and all that. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, And and we know that representation matters, right? So you just never know when you see somebody uh, that looks like you. That can be a real eye-opening experience, no matter where you are, right, and no, no matter what, what uh, you know, where you are in life, and what room you're in. If you see somebody that looks like you, that is, it's in itself, uh, reaffirming and uplifting. Um, Absolutely. So very good. Okay, so tell us, how did you then uh, transition to what you're doing now, and tell us a little bit about that, right? So you're, um, you're in the uh, general counsel's office uh, for the. Uh, VA right um, and you're working on um, appeals right tell us give the people some some understanding I could ask you a real tough ball question a real real easy question which is like why don't you want benefit why, why don't you want <laughs> why don't you want our military veterans to get their benefits that's what somebody <laughs> might say but <laughs> we know that that's not true so why don't you enlighten us a little bit about what you do
2: <laughs> Also, ultimately honestly I'll be honest I originally applied to the VA because I thought, I, I knew I would get some appellate experience. And from prosecuting, all I did was do a court appearances. So, you know, I've made oral arguments, mm-hmm. but I never made an argument via writing. So I wanted to get that experience. So honestly, that was the primary reason that I transitioned to VA. But once I got there, I saw that it was, it was way more writing than I ever anticipated. That's It was all right. Mm-hmm. But I started at the Board of Veterans Appeals, and there I wrote decisions, either granting or denying or even remanding if if there weren't enough information there. But the way that, at least from working in VA, there, there are so many different veterans that have hundreds upon thousands of claims that are just still pending within VA. So the idea was to get a veteran a a decision so that they can have some closure, either whether or not that was a positive decision or a negative decision, at least wasn't sit um, over their heads for like the past seven years because that had what been happening. So the idea was to get the case to, you know, get them some kind of firm resolution on a case. And we felt good about that. Um, Now, that's not to say that, you know, all the cases aren't granted, all the cases aren't denied, uh, but it's a little different when you're prosecuting your your interest is prosecuting but or getting justice but but working at the VA your interest really is a veteran and a deserving veteran specifically so if they do have some kind of issue that's related to service and they couldn't prove it at a lower level we most definitely want to get them those that service connection or, or those ratings so that they can move on with their lives so it's definitely important
0: So you're looking at, uh, you know, so you're on the appellate side. So when it comes to you, when a file comes to you, a decision has already been made and uh, a veteran is appealing to to your office. Is that what's happening?
2: Yeah. So let's put it this way. I've actually worked in two different capacities within V.A. So typically, if a veteran was hurt in service, they'd file a claim um, through their local or regional office for like let's say service connection for a back injury let's say um that the veteran was hurt and his on his back he says it's due to service and he's denied at the regional office he could then appeal it to the board of veterans appeals and that's where i originally worked and there i would review the evidence review their any argument that a veteran may have and they could have a representative either an attorney or just a local. Um, veteran service organization representative that can make arguments on their behalf. And then I would make the decision as to either granting, denying, or remanding any little bit more information. But what I do right now is I actually handle those decisions in the the federal court. So if the decision was denied, they could appeal it to me and then I'm reviewing it to make sure that whatever the board did, that they did it correctly. So whether that's Wow. um denying it or even if they remanded it and they don't believe it should have been remanded it or remanded or if they granted a certain amount but the veteran believes that they should have been granted a more increased amount so i review all of that and where i'm at now again wow. it's just the palette i'm just making sure that whatever was done was done correctly or if not it's got to go back
0: yeah. OK. So I think so to to correct the my incorrect premise in my question is that you're not trying to keep benefits from people. Your job is to make sure that the process runs smoothly and that evidence is presented properly uh, and that everyone gets fair treatment under the law. Right.
2: Exactly. Now, I mean, right, it's, good. Sometimes the case is denied. And I look at what's all there and I w- may agree that the denial was proper based on all the evidence that was presented. But that's just that's my ultimate job.
0: Pretty influential position and in, in doing some really obviously very, very critical work. It's got to be uh, a very uh, rewarding to be doing uh, some of that work. I imagine it can also be a challenge.
2: Yes. So it's really rewarding and challenging because veterans law just by itself is a generally new concept 30 years ago, there wasn't veterans law. So mm-hmm. you, you, take the different um, the different statutes and laws that, that Congress enacts or le- the legislature legislature enacts. And then we build a court based on that to, you know, fully show what a, a veteran is entitled to. So it's it's interesting because you can look back at any type of law, criminal or civil or, or anything that, that a regular individual would know of, that goes all the way back to the Constitution. We don't have that for veterans law. So we have to make it up as we go along. We have to make arguments to and for it. So it's very interesting. And I get to take... A part in that. So I might have a yeah, case on the books for years. Yeah. And I can always have my name associated with it. So it's definitely interesting.
0: All right. Very good. All right. So I'm running out of time here. I'm over time. I, I'm just going to be over time. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a good conversation. Uh, but I want to get to uh, my sort of real key questions. I may only have time for one. We may only have time for one. We'll see. Okay. So uh, the best, your best or worst experience in your practice thus far?
2: Oh, my best or worst experience. I'd have to say my best experience in practicing was, for me personally, handling a jury trial and just the the confidence that you have when you walk in the courtroom, when you just present the evidence to the juror, especially in the opening or closing after getting all, all the evidence in. That I, that by far was the best feeling because it made me feel like I was doing something right, and it made me feel like I was doing something competently. That's always what I want to do. If I don't, if I don't care if I win, lose, or draw, but as long as I got through it competently, that's my main goal. So I think throughout my jury trials, I was able to do that more successfully than not.
0: Okay, good. Last question. I'm gonna get to it quickly. What's your one quick advice that you would give? to your younger self or to some other lawyer, young lawyer, who's uh, kind of moving up the ranks?
2: Ooh, set a goal and stick to it. Now, it, it may shift, it may change, but I don't see any way that you can move forward without having a goal. Um, that's, I'm very goal-oriented. I, I have an idea of what I want to do 10 years from now, and then I set three little mini goals in between now to get to that 10 to that uh, 10 year goal so definitely setting a goal and sticking to it and making a little you know shifts and tweak it as you need to as time goes on
0: all right very good thanks for that i think that's wonderful counsel i appreciate you taking the time to be on the show uh and we'll maybe help, hopefully we'll have you back and kind of talk some lost stuff uh, later on in the season i hope you're open to that we'll that's be in cool. touch thank you so much friends we'll be right back Hey, friends, we are back, and it's now time for our wellness check. The wellness check this week is simple, right? Stop smoking. Friends, it's time to cut that ish out. Now, trust me, I know it's much easier said than done. I am a former smoker myself. And thank goodness, uh, thank God, (laughs) to God be the glory. Uh, And a big shout out to Chantix for the assist but I've been clean now for just about maybe like a year and a half. Um, it was April of 2021 that I stopped smoking, April 7th to be exact. And I was smoking Black & Miles, going through a pack of Black & Miles a day. So I understand that it's difficult. Uh, but I'm just going to encourage you just for your overall overall wellness, cut that ish out. And if you're not ready, I understand. Um, but just know uh, if you're going to keep smoking, just do us, uh, do me a favor uh, and do yourself a favor. Make sure you take extra care of your oral hygiene. If you're a smoker, whether you're smoking black and mild cigarettes, or even some of that, uh, Mary Jane, right? Remember to take care to mind your oral health It's really, really important. So that means uh, (laughs) that means you need to use mouthwash and uh, brush frequently and uh, chew gum or mints or something, right? Just do us all a favor, and it's not just for people who smoke either, right? It's everybody. Uh, But I'm talking to my people who smoke, uh, especially since you know the medical marijuana is on the rise, and even uh, uh, medicinal. I'm sorry, even recreational marijuana is on the rise. It's becoming more uh, more acceptable and legal here in the States, which I'm fine with. I just want people to mind their mental health if we're gonna, <laughs> if we're gonna go down that route. So to my smokers, cut that ish out. And if you're not ready, uh, then take care of your oral health. And that's for everybody. That is that on that, friends. That's your wellness check. Cut that ish out. And if you're not, invest in Listerine and please use it frequently. We'll be right back. All right, friends, we are back and it's now time for our Apex Highlight. I'm very excited to welcome my friend, Ms. Crystal Knight. She is a political strategist and social impact advisor working with national political and advocacy organizations to raise and manage money to elevate their political platforms. She is a guest commentator on Fox News and MSNBC and the host of the self-titled Newsweek podcast, The Crystal Night Show. Congratulations on that. Uh, during the 2020 cycle, she served as the political director for Priorities USA, the largest Democratic presidential super PAC, and Biden's preferred PAC. She is the founding executive director of Emerge Tennessee, a Democratic candidate training program for women seeking to run for office at every level of the, of the ballot. Miss Knight has experience as a statewide political director for a US Senate race in Tennessee as well as uh, working on the Hillary Clinton for America 2016 campaign. She served under the current mayor of Washington DC and got her start in politics working for the mayor of for the former mayor Adrian Fenty in his 2010 re-election campaign. Miss Knight is a 2012 alum of the Obama for America campaign. She completed her master's degree in international public policy at University College London and graduated with a degree in journalism from the great Howard University. Crystal, thank you so much for being on the show and welcome to Lawyerish.
3: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: Well, that was a mouthful. You've got a, a lot of uh, great experience um, in politics and policy and strategy, uh, political strategy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into that field it's you know may not be, uh, you know, the, it's not, we see these guys on TV, we see you on TV, you do a great job, by the way. But how did you get started in all this, uh, in this policy, politics, strategy world?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, as you read in my bio, I went to Howard for journalism. H-U. H-U, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Absolutely. Um, homecoming just happened a couple weeks ago, so... Got to give it up to all the Howard alums that have been in the city. Um, But I I went to, you know, I went to Howard for undergrad. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I always knew I just liked talking and hearing about stories and telling stories. So I knew that journalism was my calling. Um, When I graduated, my first job out of college, I worked at um, Voice of America. So I was a radio, radio journalist. And if you know anything about Voice of America, it's a part of the State Department, um, and a lot of the news that Voice of America produces is about international news, because really VOA is overseas. It's not; It has a U.S. presence, but most of the desk and everything is overseas. And so while I was at Voice of America, I realized I need to understand policy, because Much of the things that we were reporting on, much of the things that I was writing about were about international conflict. And I didn't have a background in international conflict. I had a background in just American policy, American, you know, government, just the general things that are taught in most of our kind of K through 12. You do learn about other countries, obviously, but I didn't have a focus, a specialized focus on it. And so I thought, you know, I didn't want to leave my job. I had a great job. But I also wanted to live overseas. And so while I was working at VOA, I learned that there was a borough in London. And so I applied to, you know, go to school, um, University College, London, UCL. And my thought was that I would, you know, get accepted, which I did, and then just transfer my role to the London borough. Well, I ended up getting a scholarship and that really opened me up so that I didn't have to work while I was in graduate school. And because I didn't work, I could really just travel and learn about the world and really take advantage of the opportunity um, that I was given while I was there. And so once I left school, it really shifted me a little bit from just hardcore journalism into a field of policy. And with policy, for me, that that meant politics. Like what's the quickest Mm -hmm. way for me to get in and to learn is to come back and join a campaign. So my first campaign was in 2010. And um, I was, you know, I joined Adrian Fenty's re-election campaign and I, I knocked on doors. I was a field operative knocking on doors in Ward 7 of Washington, D.C., which is southeast and northeast and really learned a lot. And really, I kind of got bit by the campaign bug. I stayed, you know, I hopped from campaign to campaign probably for the next three to four years, um, you know, just really engrossing myself with this world of politics because policy is politics right at the end of the yeah, day that's that's and true. i've held a number of different you know policy roles and ultimately i've kind of you know leaned on this more political role meaning kind of policy external um talking to partners and grass top leaders and principals about you know different aspects of organizations that i work for or different candidates that i work for um but that's really um, how I got into politics and what's kept me in, is just the story. I mean, really, why are people voting? Why are people not voting? Why are you running for office? Why are you not running for office? And so one of the highlights, I think, even in my career so far, because I'm still pretty, you know, relatively youngish in my career, <laughs> but I really enjoyed um, recruiting and training women to run for office yeah. um, because there's so many... Um, people who desire to run for office and don't have the opportunity. And, you know, for women, it's harder for women to run because there are a lot of other things and factors and nuances that women think about when they run for office than men. And that has literally just kept me alive when I think about candidacy. When I think about people running for office, I love to see more women run because we need more gender parity in politics.
0: Yeah, well, certainly uh, I, I would agree with that. And I imagine that's probably why you, you got on Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, but that seems like so many moons ago now. I mean, I think the, the world is, is, is very different now. Um, I think I certainly we've seen you grow. I've seen you, uh, you go a lot of places where Democrats don't want to go. I see mm-hmm. you on Fox News and, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, you know, giving your opinion and commentating on, on current events uh, but you're doing it in in a hostile environment. Uh, so if you would, trans, can you just like take us through that a little bit? How do you uh, because you're I mean, you're on some of the big national shows. I've seen you on primetime. You're, you're you know, you're a big star uh, in the making, if, if not already. So so how do you manage to keep your composure and and, and do what you kind of have come on to do? without losing it, uh, particularly when we're in this, you know, sort of twilight zone where truth uh, sometimes is, is, I don't know, not even relevant anymore. It's, it's, it's hard to, to, to square that. So how do you do it? How do you go on TV and, and speak facts and, and stick to the facts in a, particularly in a hostile environment?
3: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, It's a lot of patience. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the shortest answer is that I, I do have a lot of patience and I've learned to really perfect, I mean, the rest in bitch face. I, I hope that, <laughs> I hope if this is kid friendly, I apologize. It's kids. fine. But, <laughs> that is a term, um, but you do have to monitor what you say and how you look and, and it takes practice. I mean, I tell folks, you know, I just started doing this last year um, in April, April 2021, was my first time making an appearance on Fox. And, you know, I remember I I always look back at my first video and I'm like, man, I just look angry. Like I look, (laughs) because I was just gearing up for a fight, you know, and actually the anchor that day was really, really nice. I mean, she was a fill-in for um, the show that I was appearing on, but she was actually really nice and very reasonable. But I think even in that even in that arena, right? Even in an arena that's highly conservative, and a lot of my hits have been on conservative um, outlets, you have to go in knowing, one, that you might be going into a a dogfight, and then, two, what is your truth, right? Like, what is your truth? What is the real truth? And, of course, commentary is opinionated, but there's a big piece of commentary that is fact-based. And so if I make sure that I stick to the facts... And then give my opinion, it doesn't present as much of a challenge as you would think it does beyond just the responses. Like I expect a response back that is, you know, opposite of, of how I feel and how I think. But I also realize a lot of commentary and a lot of media is theater. And, mm, you know, so we may not want to believe that. And even our liberal outlets, right, even yeah. liberal outlets, it's theater as well. And so once you realize that then you understand how people can say things that they don't believe in and really manipulate the public. And that to me is is one of the things that's challenging about media is that I go on and say things that I do believe in. I go on and say things that I do believe should be shared and I'm and at first I I, I was embarrassed to be on more conservative media like why am I always on Fox, you know, out of all the other outlets that exist you know, in, in this, in this world, why is that the outlet? But then I also realized, you know, there's a large swath of the population that listens to Fox. They're the number one network. Um, there's also a large swath of the population that just, they don't read. They just, they hear it, they see it and they believe it. And so it becomes even more important that we have Um, democratic validators and truth validators to go onto these networks, go into these lion's den and speak the truth and not just say, oh, they're pushing, you know, theories because that's what they believe about the democratic and liberal side. There are as many of us who don't like some of these conservative outlets, there's so many more that don't like the liberal outlets. Mm -hmm. But yet, you know, we have, you know, conservative folks Who are commentating, giving commentary regularly on your CNNs, on your MSNBCs, you know, dropping opinions for WAPO, New York Times, all these other outlets. And so it's important to have a balance when we live in a world, in a society that really seeks to polarize us politically.
0: Uh, I want to, we're running out of time here. I want to get to a couple of things. One, I want you to tell us about your podcast that's out. I'm so excited about this and I want to want the people to get an opportunity to hear about it. Uh, but then I also want to get to, I don't know if you're up to up for, it, but I'd love to get some election day predictions where we're just, a, sure. maybe about a week or so, uh, away from, from election day. And then I want to get, want to finally, uh, Uh, wrap up with maybe some advice that you have for your younger self or some other younger uh, entrepreneur so uh, rapid fire why don't you tell us about your podcast first the crystal night show what's it about how can we get to it
3: sure so crystal night show you can get it wherever you get your podcast apple itunes spotify or wherever else um it's a liberal it's liberal progressive, um, it's a liberal progressive show where I'm talking to um, inherently Democratic folks, um, Democratic elected officials, former elected officials, or activists, people who are just in the space, and really trying to expand the thought about the Democratic tent just being a tent for moderates, but really being a tent for more liberal, progressive, all the people that encompass being a member of the Democratic Party.
0: Okay, well, exciting. Congratulations again uh, uh, on that. And I'll certainly be tuning in. I hope uh, my friends will do the same. Uh, So so we've got that. What about Election Day predictions here? This has been this is going to be I don't know. It's a very interesting election. Usually uh, the the party in power loses uh, power in the in the in the House and or Senate uh, in these midterms elect in, in these midterms elections. We're facing a different kind of election in many ways. Uh, one, we have, you know, the very thought of democracy being uh, on the ballot. Then you've got um, the, the Dobbs case with a woman's right to choose, uh, you know, sort of the backlash from that. And then we've got the things with the economy, like inflation is bad and folks are, are feeling it at the pumps and at the grocery stores. What's your prediction? What do you think? How, is will, will the Democrats... Hold the House or, or the Senate or both? What, what are your what's your gut feeling?
3: Yeah, my gut is telling me that the Democrats will take over the Senate, but very slightly by a razor <laughs> razor thin edge. Um, I think we're on track to lose the House. Um, and it's not surprising. I don't think we'll be that much in the minority, but we won't win is my is my guess. Now, things change. You know, there are all yep. these October surprises that happen and then things happen right before election day. But that's my take is that the Democrats will edge out a victory, meaning a a, a slim majority, but enough to, you know, give us total power in the Senate, which right now we just have 50-50 power. But in the House, we will lose the House. That's my prediction. That's my expectation. But I think if we're able to hold on to the Senate, that still is a powerful bargaining tool. Sure. Um, because things have to be sent to the Senate in order to get through, you know, the president's desk.
0: All oh, is not lost. OK, well, good. Uh, we'll 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 have you back to see where how you fared uh, on your prediction. All right. And lastly, uh, what advice uh, do you maybe have for someone who's uh, maybe your younger self or someone who's maybe interested in, in being on TV like you and being a commentator or being uh, in politics and policy? What what's your best counsel for someone like that?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. One, I think everyone should work on a campaign. That's just my personal experience. And maybe it's because of the way that I started. I also think that there are so many unconventional ways to getting into politics. I was always told you need to go work on Capitol Hill. And I was like, I've never had a desire to work on Capitol Hill. And that's no knock to anyone that has, because that, you know, that is a meaningful job, whether you're on the House or the Senate side or on the committee level Um, But that just wasn't my path. And I knew that that was not the path for me. And so I decided that I would do campaigns because that's just as much of experience. And it's it's good enough. Um, It's short enough where you can make really good impact and keep it moving. But I would also say, you know, if I'm being really honest with myself, I was approached to do media in 2018 and I was nervous. I was scared. I didn't want to make the investment into myself. So. From 2018 to 2021, you know, that was a, that was a pretty decent gap, um, but not too much of a gap where I couldn't, you know, reach back out to to the contact who had initially approached me and try again. So I would say, you know, even if you're not being approached by someone or if it's just something that you want to do, start somewhere. My The first time I began, like, really trying to put myself out there, I began with this segment on my on my social media called Thankful Thursday. And it really didn't have anything to do with politics. It was just like, you know, I've had this week and, you know, today's Thursday and I'm thankful for X. And so that was my, really, my entry into putting myself out there, having folks hear how I speak, having folks hear how I sound. Um, and now I have a whole podcast. You know, I'm a full commentator. And so... I think, you know, sometimes we talk our, ourselves out of opportunities. Sometimes we have other people who try to block us. Um, but what I will say, and this is the thing that I said to myself when I thought about getting into this space, is there's room for everyone. I really believe that. There's no, you know, they're, they're not one. they are not enough black people in the political commentary space. There are definitely not enough black women. Or, you know, black men, younger people, no matter what you feel like you look like or don't look like or have or don't have, we can always use more. And so I say that to anyone that's watching this, if you want to do TV commentary or if you want to be a writer, if you want to do podcasting, if you just want to be a social media influencer at the political level, there's not enough of us. And so I'll say that over and over again Um, If folks have questions, my DMs are always open on all of my social media handles. I'm happy to take calls or emails or chats with people because I know that the the media landscape can also be lonely. And so anything I can do to ease the the entry for another person, I want to do. All right.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm out of time. I wish I could talk to you more, <laughs> but okay. we will have you on again if you come back. Uh, thanks again, Ms. Crystal Knight. You guys check her out and we'll be having you back on to, to discuss uh, maybe uh, uh, the election turnout and how things worked out on the end to see if your prediction was right. But thanks so, uh, for that, uh, those words of wisdom. We appreciate you doing the show. Friends, we'll be right back. All right, friends, we are back. And it's now time for our motivational moment. Uh, the motivational moment this week is a bit of a rude awakening. Uh, it's, <laughs> or maybe even a wake up call, right? Uh, it was a message that I received internally and it was, it convicted me. And I'm now going to share it with you in the hopes that it will help you. Maybe you find yourself in a difficult uh, financial situation or a different, different, difficult situation. Uh, professional space where you plateaued. Uh, Maybe there is some difficulty in your love life or the lack thereof. Whatever the case is, remember uh, that there are lessons to be learned in every situation, in in every circumstance. And what I've learned in life is that we will continue to learn lessons or we'll continue to have opportunities to learn lessons until we actually learn the lesson. And so the motivational moment here today is you must complete the assignment if you want to graduate and advance to the next level. If you've plateaued, if you're tired of having uh, rough financial uh, decisions to make, if uh, you're tired of going through the same thing with your baby dad or your baby mama maybe there's something to uh, learning the lesson right there's uh, an assignment that must be completed and so a lot of times it's internal we have internal uh, assignments you know what that assignment is what what uh, what you should do in any given situation and until like for example let's use money you know you need a budget you know you need to control your spending well until We complete the assignment till you do the budget, until we monitor our our finances. uh, We're going to continue to have to repeat the finances lesson. Right. So I just encourage you to take a few moments, take the time, take the energy to complete the assignment so you can graduate and advance to the next level. You can do it. The time is now. Don't belabor it. And let's stop repeating the same lessons over and over again. Complete the assignment. That's your motivational moment. We'll be right back. Well, friends, we have done it again. This is Season 2, Episode 2. Thanks so much for joining today. I want to give a big thanks to my good friend, Jen Laskin, my other good friend, Stephen McClendon, and the great... The great crystal night from Howard University my good friend thank you so much folks for doing the show today uh, for all of you thanks for listening and for watching remember to like share and subscribe like any voyage it's always a little bit more fun if you can bring a friend or two along also want to give a big shout out to uh, Marcel Simmons and my good brother Juan at Mwanga House uh, for our editing and or for our marketing and our editing, respectively, thank you so much, gentlemen. Big shout out to Sherelle and Alexander O'Neill for our Voyage vibe today, Saturday Love. This is my jam, <laughs> um, guys. I'm so grateful to be back in the chair and to be engaging with all of you. This is really a great pleasure. I hope you're getting something out of this. Uh, remember to stop smoking. And if you're not, take care of that oral hygiene, please, friends. (laughs) And don't forget, complete the assignment. Let's graduate and move to the next level. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will see you next time. And so until then, be well.